Well, welcome to our continuing studies in 1 Corinthians. This week we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 form a unit. Uh, these four chapters begin with, Paul writes, now concerning things are meat sacrificed to idols. Then chapter 12 begins with, now concerning spiritual gifts. So these four chapters form a unit uh, basically about what is our stand when it comes to meat that is sacrificed to idols. But during this, Paul also wanders into an area just about idolatry itself and how wicked it is. And he will also bring in how we are to be eating the Passover, the bread and the wine that represent the body and blood of Messiah. And he will get into that in this chapter and then uh, a lot of detail in chapter 11. But in these four chapters, Paul takes a rabbi trail here in the first half of chapter 10. And it's, um, it's a very disturbing rabbi trail. In fact, it, to me, it's probably the most shocking and most convicting part of the entire letter to the Corinthians. So we're going to only cover the first half of this chapter today because uh, though it's usually just glossed over and people just read through it and keep going, uh, this is a place that deserves our attention and we need to slow down and really see what is being said. Let's take a look at the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. All were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Messiah. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. If those five verses don't shock you, then you're not reading them right. Five times Paul refers to all of our fathers, the fathers who came out of, of Egypt through the blood and the body of the Lamb, who crossed the Red Sea, who were under the cloud, who ate manna for 40 years, who uh, drank from the spiritual rock that provided water for them for 40 years. And yet, he says, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's a shocking statement. And he tells us later as we go through this, these things happened to them and they were recorded for our sakes so we can learn their lessons. I know that we... Those of us who grew up in, in Christianity, and especially in evangelical Christianity, we talk about our redemption, we talk about grace, we talk about grace over and over and over again, and it is wonderful. We can never say enough about it. But we speak very little about our responsibilities as God's children. And before we can really understand what's being said here and to understand it in its context, there, there are some terms we need to define. So on the screen here, I have two columns. The left column says actions. The right column says emotions. So let's take two opposite emotions. We'll start in the lower right-hand corner with the emotion of hate. Now, what is the opposite of hate. You would say probably love, but that's not the case because love is not an emotion. 
Love is an action. Love means doing what is in the interest of the other person. Love means saying no to me and yes to you. You don't have to have warm feelings for your enemy, but you're commanded to love him and do what is best for him anyway. So love is not an emotion. Love is an action. So what is the opposite of the emotion of hate? Uh, The word I would use is the word affection. Affection is an emotion. But affection does not equal love. Now, it's wonderful that you have affection for the people you love, but it's not necessary. I've always loved my kids, but there are times I did not have much affection for them. So, hate is an emotion. What is the action that corresponds to hate? Selfishness. So, love and selfishness are two opposite actions. Selfishness means I hold on. Love means I give. Affection and hate are opposite emotions. But hate does not equal selfishness, though it may manifest as selfishness. And affection does not mean love, though it may manifest as love. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. God so loved the world. He loved it so much he gave his only begotten son. God loves his people. He loves Israel because they're Abraham's children. He loved them from beginning to end. He still loves them today. But he says some very shocking things about them. In Psalm 95.10, he says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. In Hebrews 3.17 And with whom was he disgusted for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So we see that God loved his people, but didn't like them very much, much of the time. I have to to chuckle. uh, My brother, who I hope never listens to this teaching, has uh, uh, an answering machine in his home. And when you call and you get his answering machine, He has his voice message there about leaving uh, whatever you're going to say and so on. And then he always ends it with, and remember, Jesus loves you. And my yetzer hurrah acts up whenever I hear that. And I I fantasize about sneaking into his house and changing it to, and remember, Jesus loves you. But he probably doesn't like you much at all. And that is often the case with us. He does love us. But the question is, does he like us? His love for us is based on his character, but his liking us is based upon ours and especially upon our actions. And so what we see here in these five verses is God expressing love for his people. But as you go through, you're going to find out he did not like them. He was constantly getting angry with them. He is constantly disciplining them, bringing pain into life, bringing plagues, bringing fire, bringing poisonous serpents, and bringing death to them because he did not like the way they behaved. This is not a popular message, but you're going to find this is a very scriptural one. So rejoice in the fact that God loves you, but always be asking yourself, does he like me? Because he may not. How have you been behaving? How have you been behaving towards him, towards your your brothers and sisters? Are you 
acting, acting, behaving in a sacrificial way to others or in a selfish way to others. So you may even be blessed by God because of who you're married to or who your parents are or because of the community you're a part of. But even blessing is not a sign that God likes you. So I want us to grow up into people that God loves but also has affection for because we have affection for him. I want us to grow up into people who are truly his bride, one that he not only loves and lays down his life for, but one he has such deep and abiding affection for. He can hardly wait to spend eternity as one with us. So let's look at these verses one more time. I want you to get a picture of just how redeemed these people were. Now, in those first five verses, oh, by the way, I can't uh, omit John 15, 14, where Yeshua, who loved everybody, speaks to his disciples, says, you are my friends if, if you do what I command you. Can you imagine <laughs> me telling someone, oh, yeah, we, we could be friends, but only if you do everything I say. Only Yeshua gets to get away with this. But he loved everyone but not everyone was his friend. How could you become a friend of Yeshua? If you do what he commands you, if you change your behavior, if you change the way you respond to people and how you respond to God. So back to first five verses. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were immersed into Moses. They were not immersed into the sea. The Egyptians were, and they all died. But the, the Jewish people were immersed into Moses. We have to understand what immersion means. Immersion means to become one with someone. There are two individuals mentioned in this passage. One is Moses, and the other is Messiah. It says they were all immersed into Moses in the cloud. So let's draw a cloud up here because the cloud of glory followed them all those 40 years. I should say it, it uh, hovered over them and led them all those 40 years, beginning from the time they came out of Egypt. This cloud was the cloud of God's presence and of his protective glory over his people. And it says they were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So let's draw the sea this way. As you know, the waters parted. They became a wall on each side. And as they followed Moses through the sea, they walked on dry land. The sea was on either side. The cloud was above them. And as they walked through, whatever happened to Moses would happen to them. They were immersed in to Moses. But then he goes on and says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Messiah. So they all ate the same spiritual food, verse 3, all drank the same spiritual drink, at verse 4. What is the food they ate? The food they ate was manna. Where did the manna come from? came from heaven. It's called the heavenly bread. They all drank the same spiritual drink. That was the water from, from the rock. 
And it says that rock followed them. And according to Jewish commentary, that's based on an insight in the Torah, that rock that Moses struck with the rod gushed forth water, and it continued to gush forth water and roll behind them through the wilderness for 40 years. And he says that this rock is Messiah. So all the people are immersed into Moses. The people are in Moses. But the manna and the water, the spiritual food and drink, are in the people. I'm going to move this down, change this a little bit. The people are in Moses. And then the food and the drink were in the people. Excuse my handwriting. I'll clean that up before I post it on the website tomorrow. The people are in Moses, but the spiritual food, the spiritual water are in the people. Moses is always synonymous with the Torah. Are you in the Torah? Is it what surrounds you? Is it what defines your actions and your speech and your calendar and your food and your relationships and your marriage? Is it what defines your life? Do you live your life through the context of the commandments of the Torah? And do you know Messiah, the Torah made flesh? Is he in you? And Yeshua refers to eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which sounds grotesque, but nevertheless, this is spiritual. This is spiritual language. The flesh, the body of Messiah, represents his actions. The blood of Messiah represents his very life and spirit. Are his actions the consequences of his actions within us? Is his life residing in us? Are we walking in his spirit? So we have the Torah to tell us how to walk in this world. a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. But we also have the light of Messiah within us. And Paul is talking about the Israelites thousands of years ago having this experience. How well they understood this experience is a different question. But nevertheless, when you look at what Paul is describing in these five verses, what you see is salvation. You see redemption. And you see nothing missing from this redemption. These people were completely and absolutely and totally redeemed with a Torah, with the body and the blood of Messiah that's pictured in that Passover lamb. You can't get more redeemed than this. But then you look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, not with a few of them, not with half of them, but with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What Paul does next is he takes five episodes from the time that Israel left Egypt until they entered the promised land. He takes five episodes and each verse, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, I'm sorry, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, describe these five episodes, or at least refers to them with a little bit of detail sometimes. And these five episodes are found in Exodus and in Numbers. Let's see what they are. 
Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. Are you redeemed? You know Yeshua? You're, uh, you, you have theology? You do Bible studies? You're a discipleship program? You attend, um, you attend uh, some community regularly? And uh, you're involved in fellowship? You're redeemed. Good for you. These examples Paul writes for you, for me. And before we get cocky and think, this doesn't apply to me, back up just for a moment to the last verse of chapter 9. Look what Paul says about himself. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after proclaiming to others, I myself should be disqualified. Even Paul took these lessons to heart. And though he knew he was loved by God and that he was redeemed by Yeshua, That did not guarantee his success in this life and did not guarantee that God even liked him. So let's look at these five. Verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that A, we not desire evil as they did. Verse seven. B, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. D, we must not put Messiah to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. E, not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here's a question for you Who is the destroyer? And of course, your answer immediately will be, well, that's Satan. It has to be Satan. I'm surprised for you. It's not Satan. Stay tuned. You'll see who that is in a moment. So he has these five episodes. But the weird thing, as I went through these, is that the episodes are completely out of order from how they appear in the Torah. The first episode occurs in Numbers chapter 11. The second episode, Paul backtracks all the way to Exodus 32. Then the third episode, he jumps way to near the end of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. And then episode 4, he backs up to episode 20, or, or Numbers chapter 21. And then episode 5, he backs up further to Numbers chapters 13, but especially chapter 14. Why did he get these so out of order? Now, when Paul wrote Corinthians, he probably did not have a Torah scroll in front of him. He had the Torah up here. And he knew it by heart. He knew the, core, the, uh, the chronological order of these events. So when he mixes them up and shuffles them together in a different order, he's doing it on purpose. And as we go through, let's see if we can discover his purpose for ordering these events as he does. They're completely out of order. And that's always been confusing to me. But I think it will make sense by the time we work our way through them. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at some rather long passages of Scripture, so I invite you to open your Bibles, and we're going to start with Numbers chapter 11. And I always forget that I have these little rabbi trails of my own. Let me show you something here before we continue. Um, We're told in Scripture that um, the rock from which the people drank was flint. It's in Deuteronomy 8. Verses 15, 16. 
He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. There are all different kinds of rocks, but this rock that they drank from was a rock of flint. The word for flint in Hebrew is the word chalamish, and that's what you see here at the top. Now, Yeshua says, I'm sorry, Paul says that this rock represents Messiah. Well, what's interesting is if you rearrange the letters of the word flint, chalamish, they spell the word la mashiach, those last four letters of the word mashiach, Messiah. And when you put a, a lamed, that first letter in front, it means toward or to then whatever follows. So it would mean toward the Messiah or to the Messiah. But the letter Lamed itself, Lamed, means to learn. This is where we get the word Talmud from the word Lamed. Talmud are disciples. They are students who are learning from their rabbi. So we can translate Lamashiach as toward the Messiah, or learn about the Messiah. And the way we learn of him is by drinking in his words as water came from the rock to take what comes out of Yeshua and bring it into yourself. It draws you to Messiah and you learn of him. So I just wanted to share that little bit. We could also talk, might as well, could also talk about manna. There's the word for manna in Hebrew. It's pronounced man. It's never called manna. It's, that's the English way we say it, but man is the way it's said in Hebrew. And we know that this was spiritual food, as the water that came from the rock was spiritual drink. Paul says this is spiritual food. And they called it manna because they didn't know what it was. When they saw it, the Bible says they said, man who? What is it? It's a question. What is it? But it also can mean, what is he? What is he? They didn't quite understand this manna thing. And they often complained about it, as we're going to see. But uh, we see that uh, Mashiach is the living water. And also in John's gospel, he says he's the bread from heaven. He's the man the man that came from heaven to give life to us. But they called it, they saw it, said, man who? What is he? What is it? And uh, people are still saying and asking the same question about Yeshua today. Well, let's get back on with our study. I call these Israel's exemplary sins. Now, we usually talk about something being exemplary because we want to, uh, um, we want to aspire to it. Well, these are not sins we want to aspire to. But these are examples of five kinds of sins. And there's a progression in these sins. And these are things that were written and recorded so that we would not fall into the same failures. So in Numbers chapter 11, starting with verse 1, we read this. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of Adonai. And when Adonai heard it, his anger was kindled. I'm really convinced that God becomes more angry with his own kids than he does with others. Just like with you, 
probably the people who make you the most angry are the people in your own family. And one of the reasons is because you love them more than other people, or at least you should. And the people you love and the people in your family, they're poised to betray you and to hurt you in ways that no one else is. And so they can make us angry because we want the best for them. We want such good things for them. We, we want them to aspire to excellence. And it hurts us deeply when they don't. And when they take our family name and maybe drag it into the mud. And the writer to Hebrews talks about how if, if God is not disciplining you, then maybe you're not his kid. Because after all, you can spank your own kids, but you don't spank the neighbor kids. You spank the ones who belong to you. And if God's bringing discipline and punishment to your life, then you should rejoice in that. He's treating you like his own child. doesn't mean he likes you. He loves you. He cares about you. He's rooting for you. He wants you to do well. But don't be surprised when he brings pain into your life. But anyways, as we go on, his anger was kindled and the fire of Adonai burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Adonai, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, which means burning. Now, there are two episodes here in this chapter, and um, the reason we're covering this is because Paul said, after all, in verse 6, he said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. They had evil desires. And then going back to Numbers 11 and verse 4, it says, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Literally, that means they lusted with a craving. It wasn't just a desire. It was a desire that consumed them. They lusted with craving. And it says, And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Did you catch that? They ate the fish for free in Egypt. I guess when you're a slave, then whatever you get is free. But then again, you're laboring for someone who owns you. So is it really free after all? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. In Hebrew it says our soul is dried up. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. In Hebrew it says, there is nothing but this manna for our eyes. So the people are craving meat instead of manna. God was giving them bread from heaven to give them spiritual food to eat. But they lost their appetite for it. And they didn't just do it on their own. There was a rabble with them that stirred up this complaint. We need to be careful who we hang with. Do you ever find yourself being, stirring up an appetite, having it stirred up in your life because you're hanging with someone who's suggesting you shouldn't be so happy? That you actually have reasons to be miserable? You start thinking, yeah, maybe I am miserable. Someone once said that Adam and Eve were perfectly happy in the garden until someone suggested they could be happier. And then they became miserable. And then they stole from God. You can see the mess the world's in because of that. When we lose our gratitude for what God gives, 
we begin to complain and to crave things he has not given. But in this case, if you skip on down to verse 31, Numbers 11, 31, God grants their request. It says, Now there went forth a wind from Adonai, or a spirit, a ruach from Adonai, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. Well, what's interesting, when's the last time we saw the sea? That was when it closed up and killed all the Egyptians. Don't forget the source of these quail. There's a connection there. And about a day's journey on this side, a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep. That's about three feet deep. On the surface of the ground, the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, the rabbi suggests they started eating it raw. They had such a, a lustful craving for flesh that they began to eat these birds raw. Before it was chewed, the anger of Adonai was kindled against the people, and Adonai struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibrot Hata'ava, the graves of the lusters, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. So let's look at this. They had evil cravings. Evil cravings made them complain. They complained against God's amazing, miraculous provision of manna every day. He sends destructive fire. And some of the people died from that, or at least they were burned seriously. Then the people crave meat instead of manna. God grants their request. God becomes angry again. People are killed by a plague. We don't know how many. But those who died were buried in Kibrotata'ava, graves of the lusters. Do you know believers who started strong? People who seemed to be disciples, and maybe they even were pastors and teachers, missionaries. But they had lustful cravings, maybe for money, for fame, for a following for pleasures of this world, and they crashed and they burned. And now their memories, instead of inspiring you, they're a warning to you because their death was kibrotata'ava. This is what happens to those who are lusters. People who are redeemed out of Egypt, they are brought from death to life, from slavery to freedom, but they didn't make it in because they lost their gratitude and they developed a craving that was completely out of line with God's heart. God has strong desires for us. Let's make sure our desires are also strong, but we desire the same things that he wants for us. And then Paul says in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This, of course, is a quote from Exodus 32, which is the horrible episode of the golden calf. Now, a lot of us read the stories that uh, take place in the Torah and about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and we look at this golden calf incident as probably being the most horrific one of them all. But actually, it wasn't. There were worse ones. And what happened in chapter 32 is that the people have come out of Egypt. 
49 days later, they are at Mount Sinai. They hear God speak. They see the fire and the darkness and the cloud on top of Mount Sinai. God speaks forth his ten words, his ten commandments. And um, it was a, a terrifying spectacle. Nothing like it has ever been done before or since. And this was on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, the very first Pentecost. And the people were so frightened, they told Moses, Moses, you go talk to God. We're going to die if he keeps talking to us. And so God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people started getting impatient. Where is this Moses? Where is he gone? And they thought that he was delayed in his return. So the people got impatient. And they were told that the people corrupted themselves. And they kind of arm twist or or talk Aaron into making a golden calf. And they call the golden calf by God's name, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh. And they worship it. They bow down to it and bring sacrifices to it. God becomes angry again. And he wants to destroy them. He wants just to wipe them out. But Moses uh, talks him out of it. But when Moses starts coming down the mountain and sees what's going on, Moses becomes angry. It's very difficult for a humble man to become angry. It's a very rare thing. There's even a saying that you cannot make a humble man angry. But God is the most humble of all, and he is capable of anger. And Moses, who is the most humble of all men, the Torah tells us, he was also capable of anger. And as he sees what's going on, he takes the two stone tablets that God has inscribed with his own finger, and he throws them down. There's an important lesson here for us. People who are practicing idolatry, people who are engaging in sin, cannot receive the word of God. They just simply cannot receive it. So Moses broke the two stone tablets. But the Levites did not participate in this idol worship. And so Moses calls anyone who's on the Lord's side, you know, come to me. And the Levites came to them, all of them. And he told them, put your swords on and go through the camp. And anyone who's committing sin, who's involved in these orgiastic activities, kill them. And now we get a number, 3,000 die at the hands of the Levites. The Levites are promoted for this. They are set aside as the the priestly tribe. It's an odd way to choose priest, people who will kill in the name of Adonai. It's a very odd thing. It deserves a study of its own. But uh, the Levites, I think they may have learned their lesson from their forefathers in Shechem when Levi and Simeon went in and killed all the Shechemites because of their sister Dinah. But this time, the Levites turned their, their uh, bloodthirstiness to God's purposes. But it's a very serious thing that took place that day. 3,000 died at the hand of the Levites, and God rewarded them. Now, the lesson for us here is not that we should be ready to pull a gun or a sword on somebody we see sinning and kill them. But we must be willing to stand strong for God in the face of sinning brothers and sisters. We must stand up, not to kill our brothers and sisters, but do everything in our power to help them destroy the sin in their own lives. 
And as the Levites used a sword, we need to use the sword of the Spirit to accomplish God's purpose. We want to see people grow. We want to see people thrive. We want to see people get strong. But sometimes we have to use the sword of the Spirit to bring some destruction. We have to destroy sometimes friendships. Sometimes relationships are damaged. But our primary goal is to destroy the sin that is destroying our brothers and sisters. And um, if you hesitate to speak loving correction and reproof to a brother or sister, you're not being a friend to them. You have to be willing to sacrifice a relationship for the sake of your friend's soul. We need to be more like the Levites. And Levi, God calls these people his priest, his Kohanim, his servants, the people who live closest to his heart. We're going to see another Levite later on who also wields death with a spear. And God gives him an eternal covenant of peace and a perpetual priesthood. So let's get on to the next story. The next story, Paul says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Well, obviously, this incident is the one that took place in Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, if you go there, it says this, verse 1, When Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. You remember, uh, Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. But every time he went to curse, blessing came out. So Balak was pretty angry with Balaam, but Balaam still wanted to get paid. So Balaam counseled King Balak. He said, do this. My cursing the people isn't going to accomplish anything. But if you take your best-looking Moabite women and you send them down there to the camp among these Israelite men, and you use them to seduce the men to worship their idols and then to engage in immorality with them, God himself will wipe them out. So this is exactly what Balak did, and this is exactly what happened. It says, For they invite the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor. What's interesting, Peor simply means a hole, an empty hole. Baal means the master or the lord of, the lord of the empty hole, the black hole. (coughs) There's a lesson here for us. Anything you invest in sexual immorality is like taking your, your soul, your strength, your time, your emotions, your resources, and throwing them into a black hole because nothing good comes out of it. It is a fruitless activity that will only bring, bring, bring pain and suffering, embarrassment, and shame. So they became attached to Baal Peor. And Adonai was angry against Israel. And Adonai said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before Adonai, so that the fierce anger of Adonai may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives 
a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So this man brings this Midianite woman right to the door of the tabernacle. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the midst of the congreg- uh, into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. Paul says 23,000. It's not a big deal. The rabbis, you'll generally find this, you'll find numbers in Scripture, unless they're doing a very specific kind of census, or are usually rounded, and they end in, in zeros, in this case, three zeros. So it's probably somewhere between 23 and 24,000, and um, maybe 23,500. So one says 24,000, Paul says 23,000. Maybe there's something he's trying to teach through this number. I'm not sure what it is, if that's the case. But that's no big deal. The point is, a lot of people died. A lot of people died from a plague that God sent. Did God love his people? Yeah. Did he like them? Not much. Not when they're behaving like this. But Phineas' decisive action ended the plague. And it says Phineas was awarded with a covenant of perpetual priesthood. In the previous incident, we see the Levites taking this kind of action. But only 3,000 people died. God sends a plague and 23,000 die or 24,000. But this one man made a huge difference. He brought the plague to an end by his act of zealousness for God. Paul says this was written and recorded to teach us and to give us a warning. Incident number four. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says we must not put Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. This incident is the one that took place in Numbers chapter 21. This is what it says. In Numbers 21, we'll start with verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, in the past, they were only speaking against Moses and Aaron. Now, they're directly complaining against God himself. This is a new low for them. You know, usually, the way we complain against God is we take God's messenger and we complain about him. And we all have this tendency if uh, some guy comes along, a teacher, a preacher, prophet, and, and he's uh, s- supposedly speaking for God, he's telling us something we like to hear, we'll say, oh, this is a man of God. Hey, everybody, listen to this man. But if the man comes and speaks something that we don't like to hear, we say, ah, oh, he's an idiot. We need to be extremely careful that we don't embrace a message that we like to hear and think it's from God when it is not. But likewise, we need to be careful don't reject a message that we don't want to hear when it does come from God. So the question is, how do we know? Yeshua said you'll recognize a false prophet by his fruits. 
but that's a little vague. What are the fruits? How do we recognize this? Well, there are three things. I don't have these on the screen, but there are three things that I use when I <laughs> go on YouTube and I listen to a teacher or some kind of self-proclaimed prophet or, or uh, some speaker. There are three criteria. First one, doesn't agree with the scriptures. Is what they are saying in line with the scriptures? Does it agree not just with the statements of scriptures, but with the lessons of the scriptures? Remember, the Torah has commandments and the Torah has lessons. We need to learn the commandments and live by them, but we need to look at the stories of the Torah and learn the lessons from those stories that provide patterns for behavior. Does the message of the person who claims to speak for God align with the scriptures? It's, it's commandments with its stories and illustrations and lessons. Or is it something contrary? For example, when a man comes along and says, uh, Jesus is going to return on such and such a date. Well, right away you dismiss him. Because that is contrary to the scriptures where Yeshua says, no man knows the day or the hour. And every time someone has come along and said he's going to come back on such and such a date, the people who followed them wound up in embarrassment and shame. So, does it agree with the scriptures? Second of all, the man's life. What's the fruit of the man's life? Is he one who has a good track record of speaking God's message? Or does he have a, a string of failed prophecies and messages behind him? Uh, what's his character like? Um, is what he's teaching for the sake of his own uh, ego? Is it something that he's doing to build himself up, to get a following? Um, what's his moral life like? What's his marriage like? Those who are followers of his, what kind of lives do they lead? What's the moral tone and character of this speaker? That's very, very important. Now, we know nobody's going to be perfect, but what's the pattern of their lives? And then the third thing is this. Does he get personal reward from his message or persecution? Because there's one thing that happens to every single prophet of God without exception. Their message earns them persecution. They don't get rich from it. They don't get... Uh, praise and glory from it for men. But as Yeshua says, they stone the prophets. They're always stoning and persecuting and killing the prophets. So if a prophet is saying something that gets him nothing but persecution and slander, and he gets no personal reward from it, that speaks highly. Still doesn't mean he's right. But if he's getting reward and, and he's saying, call the number at the bottom of the screen and send me some money, then you know he's a false prophet. So what kind, of, uh, what kind of repercussions does he get? And from even the greatest prophet who is Moses to the perfect Messiah himself, their prophecies got them nothing but the ire and the anger of the people that they led. So those are the three things, the scriptures, the character, and then what kind of, what kind of um, uh, repercussions does the message bring to the messenger? So those are three things I think will help you, and they, they've protected me in many ways as I hear a message I really like and I want to believe it, and I have to stop and think, okay, let's do the test here.
So they put Messiah to the test. In Numbers chapter 21, we start with verse 5. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? It looks like they've become prophets themselves. They're prophesying their own death in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water. Actually, there was. But what do they say about the food and the water that God has provided? We loathe this worthless food. Manna throughout Scripture is a picture of Messiah and a picture of God's Word because Yeshua is the Word made flesh. And I know our tendencies to start off strong and read the Bible every day and meditate on it and study it. And after a while, our, our fire starts to, to burn out. We start skipping a day here or there. Or we just read a, a paragraph out of a devotional, and pretty soon we're not spending any time in his word at all. We've lost our taste for it. We've lost our gratitude for it. And then we look for things to fill in its place. We start reading books and watching movies and engaging in entertainment that is far from manna. We need to be very careful of this. We loathe this worthless food. Then Adonai sent fiery serpents among the people. Notice it doesn't say he got angry. He just sends fiery serpents, these poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Adonai and against you. Pray to Adonai that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and Adonai said to Moses, Make a a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Of course, this is a picture of Yeshua. Yeshua himself said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Moses made a nachash nachashet, a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, it struck me that in this case, it doesn't tell us the number of people, it just says many died. Many people die. And I see here that it doesn't mention God getting angry. I think at this point, God was numb. It's like someone who's hurt you so many times, who's let you down so many times, who's rebelled against you so many times, spoken against you so many times, spit on you so many times. After a while, it's just like you don't waste the emotional energy on them. And the absence of any mention of God being angry or Moses being angry, to me, speaks volumes. It's almost like he's just numb. I'm just done. They sense send serpents among them. A serpent is always a picture of the enemy. He lets the enemy into the camp, this poison, these poisonous serpents. And when you start seeing the enemy begin to take a very active role in your life, you see him popping up everywhere in your life and ingesting his poisonous lies into your life over and over then maybe this is the stage you're at where you're complaining against God's provision. God's word has 
lost its appeal to you. You've lost your taste for it. And you complained against how God is working in your life. You complained against Moses, against the Torah. I'm tired of doing these commandments. So don't be surprised if the poisonous serpents show up. And as bad as this is, it does get worse. Worse than this, worse than the golden calf, worse from all their, than all their complaining and all their other sins, uh, Baal Peor and the, the thing with the Midianite women, the very worst one of all is number five. And that's in Numbers chapter 14, especially in 14. It's their grumbling. This is what Paul says, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here's what it says in Numbers. We'll start with verse 2. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And Adonai spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, we're going to skip on down to verse 26. There's a long section in between there. Verse 27, God says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares Adonai, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. So what is the context for this? The Israelites have come up to the Jordan River, there is the goal, right there, about as far from here to that wall, which you can't see, but 20, 30 feet away. There's the goal. There's the promised land. This is what it's all about, the land of our inheritance. We're coming home. So they approach Moses and say, Moses, let's send some spies across. Seemed like a good idea to Moses. So they send a spy from each tribe, 12 spies in all, including Caleb and Joshua. The 12 spies go across, they explore the land for 40 days, they come back, they have huge clusters of grapes and pomegranates, they say, man, it's an incredible place, it is just overflowing with milk and honey, and look, there's the fruit of it, but we can't conquer it, it's too hard, we'll die, there are giants over there, the cities have walls that are so big, we can't, there's no way we can lay siege to them, it's, it's a lost cause, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb, of course, stood up and said, we can do this. And the people were so angry, they were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb for it. This really made God angry. Let's see what he says. They They had said to him, you know, that we can't do it. We'll all die. Our children will die. So verse 28, Numbers 14, 28, God says, Say to them, as I live, declares Adonai, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. You said that they would kill you if you go across there? He says, I'm going to do it for them. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I'll bring them in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, 
your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. And get this, verse 33, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Your children become the shepherds. Instead of you raising your children to be strong and faithful and to follow God, your children will become the shepherds, shepherding you while you die over the next 40 years. And they will suffer for your faithlessness. These people were simply too faithless, too cowardly to go in to be suitable citizens of the land of promise. They spent 40 days exploring the promised land. So God says, you're going to be spending 40 years in this wilderness. Your children will become the shepherds. And they're going to suffer because of your faithlessness. But I'll bring them in. The ones you thought were all going to die if you follow me, they're the ones who are going to live and I'll give them success. But you, your fears, your fears were fatal. Your fears are what killed you. Your faithlessness is what's going to cause you to die here and the goal's just there. You got this close, but you couldn't make it across. So the people grumble against Moses and Aaron. They accuse God. The people become angry at Joshua and Caleb. And this time, all the people die, except Joshua and Caleb, the faithful, and the children, the innocent. So, have you figured out why these five incidents are found in this order? In the first one, we see fire, we see some people die. In the next one, we see 3,000 people die. In the next one, we see 23,000 people die. In the next one, it says we, many people died. And then in this one, they all die. This, I believe, is why Paul places them in this order. And you'd think the grumbling would be the least important one. I mean, isn't the, the idolatry of the golden calf much more serious? Doesn't that deserve death more than this? Well, I think the reason this is so, so serious is because, first of all, the people should have known better by this point. They had seen God at work. They'd been so completely and utterly redeemed by God's love, by God's grace. They had seen God's provision. They had been spanked a few times by him already. And there they are right at the goal. They even have eyewitness testimony of how wonderful the land is. And there's just simply no excuse. They grumbled and grumblings grow. You know, later in Corinthians, we'll get into Paul discussing speaking in tongues. When, uh, when God's Spirit so infuses a person's soul that God just speaks through the person. We know Satan does the same thing. It's just not called speaking in tongues. It's called grumbling. Because when you grumble, you're taking the spirit of the enemy himself and you're allowing it to express through you. God hates grumbling. Because when grumbling begins, it's that seed 
that will grow into something that is so destructive, so utterly destructive in our lives. We as believers, if we are at all disciples of of Messiah, we have nothing, nothing to grumble about, ever. And I believe grumbling is one of the most horrendous sins any of us can ever commit because it will lead to every other sin. Husbands, you grumble about your wife, you're on the road to an adulterous affair. Wives, you grumble about your husbands, you're on your way to an adulterous affair. You begin to grumble against the Torah, you're on your way to slavery to sin. You grumble about the authorities in your life, then you're on your way to real slavery. We need to be careful because of these five, this one was the worst and it was the grumbling that destroyed that entire generation, entire generation with the exception of two people, Joshua and Caleb. May God give us more Joshua's and more Caleb's. Joshua's name is the same as Yeshua, means salvation. May God give us more people who walk like Yeshua. Caleb's name comes from two words, kol lev, which means whole heart. And may God give us more whole-hearted people who are faithful to follow him and won't follow the crowd. May God give us ears that are attuned to his, to his heart, to his ways. I'm going to show you a picture. I don't like showing idols. I just don't like it. The idols are ugly, but I'm going to show you the idol of this age. There it is, right there. That's the idol of the age. The easy chair. Comfort. This hasn't always been the idol of the age, but it's reared its ugly head many times through human history. But in our modern age, with all of our conveniences and our welfare programs and, um, and everything else we've got going, comfort has become our God. It's a God we willingly obey. We obey at slightest whim. And I'm going to tell you something right now, so I'm just warning you, don't ever say this in front of me. Whenever I approach someone and I want to share with them God's word. They ask me a question, and I share, well, this is what God, God's word says to do. Or there's an area of service where they can serve and should serve. And then when they reply this back to me, they say, well, I'm just not comfortable with that. The word that flashes in my mind like a neon sign is idolatry. And this is the idol. Comfort? You make their decisions based on how comfortable they are, then you're no disciple of Yeshua. If comfort is your God, then you are not a Christian. You're not a disciple, and I wonder if you're even a believer. God calls us to an uncomfortable life. The name of this teaching is a victorious, living a victorious life. There's no victory without warfare. You were born into a war zone. And we are meant to be warriors, and we are to put on the armor of God. 
because we have an enemy who hates us with a white-hot passion. But the moment we trade in the God of the Word for the God of comfort, the enemy has won. I used to, most of you don't know this, but when uh, Robin and I got married almost 42 years ago, I couldn't afford a piano. I grew up playing piano, so I just went to guitar. That was cheaper. And so I could afford a guitar, and so I just played guitar all the time. This is before Beth the Coons, when I had free time. And, uh, and, and then I would start writing songs. I'd write goofy songs. As kids came along, we would send these, sing these goofy songs. But sometimes I'd write songs about uh, things that were happening in my life. And I, I wrote one called The Ballad of Charlie Chosen. It was about Jehovah Witnesses that kept banging on our door where we lived. And um, we were attending Middlebury Chapel. I wrote one called I'm a Middlebury on the Tree of Life. What kind of fruit are you? And uh, then, but there's one that seemed to be most popular. And uh, I would be invited to come and, and, um, and play it. And I would... <laughs> I would drag my sister along, a sister-in-law along, and 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 others, and they would do the singing. I just play guitar. And it was called Padded Pews. I hadn't thought about that for a long time until this teaching. I grew up in a church where there were no pads on the pews. They were just rock hard pews. They were miserable. They were they were torture devices, and uh, there was no sleeping in that church. And, uh, but then we built a new building when I was about 12 years old. We built a new building, had air conditioning, and had padded pews. And I mean, we all thought we had died and gone to heaven. And over the years, I thought about that because that's when things began to change to a great degree. We started catering to people's comfort rather than to obedience to our king. So the song, Padded Pews, I don't remember the verses, but the chorus goes, Padded pews, padded pews, so comfortable I never want to move. While half the world goes to hell, the other half sleeps so well, like dead men on display in padded pews. Does that describe you? You just want sameness? You want comfort? Business as usual? Do you measure what God wants of you depending on how much comfort it's going to cost? If this is your God, then God doesn't like you very much. He loves you. He doesn't like you. Because this is not the God we're called to follow. And again, don't ever tell me, I'm just not comfortable about that. Just not comfortable with that. Well, you know what? I'm not very comfortable for anything I do. But I don't do it for my comfort. God comforts me. And throughout the scriptures, he promises comfort to those who mourn, to those who are persecuted, to those who are suffering, to those who are worn out, the people who are short of breath, the people who are going through struggles and difficulties, through hopelessness, God has no end of comfort to offer these people, but comfort is not something we pursue. It's something God gives because we're doing the work. It's not something we embrace as a way to not do the work. And we find lots of places in Scripture, I'm going to close with these, some warnings to worshipers, to to worshipers of the God of comfort. 
Proverbs 6, verses 9 to 11. Solomon writes, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Oh, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty, think spiritual poverty here, not just physical, spiritual poverty, will come in like a robber. Robbers back then were not cat burglars. They came in with violets. And your need like an armed man. Revelation 3, verses 16 to 22. This is Yeshua's letter to the assembly in Laodicea. Laodicea, Laos means people, and Decea means um, the people's will, where the people do what they want. He says to them, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. You see, when you're cold, you're uncomfortable. When you're hot, you're uncomfortable. But in between, you're comfortable. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Did, did God love the church at Laodicea? Of course he did. Do you like him? Not at all. Because you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I don't need anything. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Oh, may God allow us to see us as we are. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Ah, fire is uncomfortable. I don't know if I want that. That you may become rich. And white garments that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They couldn't see because they were blind. Because they were blind, they couldn't see that they were naked. And they... Because they were naked, they couldn't get close to the fire. I mean, they're going to get burned by that. They, they can't go to work and earn gold. They were just a hot mess, and all along thinking they're doing just fine. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Do you know that in the Bible, it's God's people who are called to repent more than sinners? In fact, very rarely do you ever see sinners told to repent, people who don't know God. It's the people who know God, God's people, believers, Christians, who are told to repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. We always want to use that verse with people who are non-believers. But Yeshua is speaking to us to people who claim to be believers. But here, he's pictured as outside their lives. He's the light. They have the door closed against him. They are in darkness. And in the darkness, you can imagine anything you want. You can imagine you're rich. You can imagine you're well-clothed. You can imagine you can see fine, but it's just darkness. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. In other words, if you let me come in and sit with you in your house, I will allow you to come and sit with me in mine. But if you don't answer the door that Yeshua is knocking on your heart, then someday you'll be knocking on his door. He'll say, go away, I don't know you. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. And then one more. And again, there are many parables and stories I could give. But how about this one? Matthew 25, the story of the, the ten virgins. And this is just the last part. They're all there. They're waiting for the wedding, wedding feast, waiting for the, the bridegroom to arrive. Kind of like us. We're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. We all have our lamps. And it's light out. We're all saying, oh, let, oh you got a beautiful lamp. Oh, yeah, I got this one. And everybody's comparing their lamps. And, and uh, But a lamp without oil is useless in the dark, isn't it? It says, and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. You know, they were waiting for the bridegroom. They heard the trumpet and, and they lit their lamps and their five foolish virgins didn't have any oil in theirs. They said, give us some ears. They said, sorry, not, not going to do that. They can't do that. Wise virgins, no, you can't give the oil away that you have. Each person must crush and make their own oil. So while they were going away, the five foolish virgins going away to try to get some oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready, those who were ready. It doesn't say those who hurried up and got ready real quick, but the ones who had been in readiness all along, the ones who were ready went in with them to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Well, we talked about that phrase, I do not know you, means we're not one. We're not on the same page. You didn't serve me. You just did what was comfortable. And you wanted to show up for the party. But inconveniently for you, the party was scheduled for a time that you weren't ready. I hope you don't hear any word I'm saying today as condemning. I don't have any people in mind as I teach this. It's just a warning I feel so heavily in my spirit. For me, for Beth DeCoon, for anyone who's listening to this, because I believe the shofar sounding, the bridegroom is coming, and a lot of people just simply aren't ready, though they think they are. I think too many people think they're part of the bride of Messiah, and they're not. They say, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and that's true. They'll say, oh, God loves me, and that's true. But if you're not serving him with your whole heart, with your, whole, your soul and your strength, if you're following the God of comfort, you take the easy path, the familiar path, God still loves you, but he doesn't like you much. He likes those who obey him. And I want God to like the people he loves. I want him to like the children that he loves so much that he died for and gave his life for. But the scriptures are crystal clear that God loves the world, but there are only a few people who responded to him in such wholeheartedness and courage, and faith, and self-sacrifice. Those are the few he likes. We skipped a passage back up here in Numbers 14, 8. It says, if Adonai is pleased with us, I think this is Caleb speaking, if I'm not mistaken. 
If Adonai is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. I want that. But I'm not going to get it if he's not pleased with me. And how is he going to be pleased with me? If I obey him. If I do what he says. If I squash down my fears, squash down my complacency and my desire to be a schlub on the couch. And I love being a schlub on the couch. And I confess I eat the bread of laziness a whole lot more than any man should. But I don't want to be that way. And so I am sharing with you an uncomfortable message. It's uncomfortable for me. But comfort be damned. We are called to rise up and follow our king. To do battle for him. To fight for the souls of others. To be lights in a dark world. To stand when other people are falling. To obey the direction he gives us regardless of the cost. He's calling us to be disciples. The word disciple in Greek is martyria. It's where we get our word martyr. Because unless you die to your own self, you can never be his disciple. Unless you can say no to yourself and truly follow him because you love him, you can never be his disciple. And only disciples know what freedom is. His disciples know the truth. The truth makes them free. So here are your discussion questions. So in your home groups, take some time to think about these. And some of these are very personal and you will have to be a little vulnerable in front of one another if you answer these aloud. So be sensitive. How can God love someone and dislike them at the same time? Are there people you love but also dislike intensely? I'm sure there are. What must you do to become Yeshua's friend? Who is the destroyer in verse 10? We didn't really answer that question, so let's do it now. The destroyer is God himself. He's the destroyer. It's not Satan. It's God. And he makes no bones about this. When you go back and you read the story of the Exodus and the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. There are a number of verses there that you can look at. And uh, Exodus 11 and 12, let's just quickly do these. Exodus 11:4. So Moses said, thus says Adonai, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Exodus 12, 33, for Adonai will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Adonai will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Sounds like two people there. Remember, Yeshua is the lion and the lamb. If the the blood's lamb is on your door, then the lion doesn't come in to destroy. But the destroyer and the savior are both God himself. Exodus 12, 27, you shall say, 
It is the sacrifice of Adonai's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Who is this destroyer that Paul talks about? God himself. He's brought destruction in my life, praise God, because there were things in my life that needed to be destroyed, and I felt the pain of them. So, who would you rather have as a destroyer in your life, the enemy or God himself? Because there's a destroyer who actually loves you. And whatever he does to bring pain into your life and stress, he does it for your good. How big of a role does the idol of comfort play in your own life? What specific thing do you plan to do about it? And these are things you just take some time to really think about. And home group leaders, I want you to do something. I want you to challenge each one in your group to verbalize, if, if they're willing, something in their life that they're going to work on this week. And then next week when you get together, ask them to share what they've changed. Did they do it? Were they able to accomplish it? And uh, let's start getting very specific about the things we're going to change in our own lives so that we truly become disciples of our Messiah. Remember, Messiah did not want to come here. He says, I came here because the Father sent me. And when he got here, he says, I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of the Father who sent me. If we're disciples of his, we go places we don't want to go and do things we don't want to do because comfort is no longer our God. We're yoked to Yeshua. We do what our king wants. So I challenge you with that. As we go into the dark days ahead, and whatever our future holds, let's do it with courage, with faith. And let's not look back on this life we lived and be ashamed and be embarrassed we didn't do more. Let's live this life right the first time through. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and our King, we thank you so much that as our Father, you do love us. And you discipline us, you scourge us, as the writer of Hebrews says. You bring pain and destruction into our lives. But Lord, you do it because you want us to do well. You want us to become people that you don't just love, but you even admire. People to whom you can say, well done. So Lord, I pray you do whatever it takes in the life of every single person hearing this teaching that they will rise up to become the man of God, the woman of God that you want them to be, that they know they should be, that deep down they want to be, and help them to conquer the idol of comfort, the idol of their own traditions, the idol of their own desires, and the weight of their own egos and their own self. Lord, we're sheep. And that's not a compliment when you call us sheep. We are dumb. We are complacent. And we don't like change. But as disciples, Father, you ask us to rise above the nature of a sheep and not to behave like sheep. But to have a heart of a shepherd. To know how sheep think, but not to think like one but to think like you. 
to be courageous, to be warrior sheep, to be sheep who lead into the battle and into the darkness without fear. Lord, make us the people you want us to be. And I pray you'll take the stern warning that Paul gives us about these examples that happened to the Israelites for our sake, the recorded for our sake, so that we would not make the same failures in our own lives. Lord, may we each take these things to heart so we can grow up and become the people this world so badly needs to see. And this will do with your help. And we ask all of this for the sake of your kingdom. In the name of Yeshua, our King. Amen.